On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome back one of our favorites, Jessica Knoll. Jessica is the New York Times bestselling author of The Favorite Sister and Luckiest Girl Alive, which she adapted and executive produced for the screen, starring Mila Kunis. In 2021, she was named a screenwriter to watch by Variety, and in 2019, her original script, Till Death, sold to Amazon and made the blacklist. Her books have been published in over 40 languages. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and bulldog, Franklin. And your new novel, Bright Young Women, is out now. We loved it, and we cannot wait to talk about it. So why don't you just give our listeners the elevator pitch for Bright Young Women? It is a fictional reimagining of the final murderous spree of our country's most famous serial killer, which I don't name in the novel, but it is based on the crimes of Ted Bundy. And I just thought, why not tell this story from the perspective of what it must have been like to kind of live through this or not. So that's my new novel. We love a rage epiphany. And mm. you had one <laughs> and you described you described it on social media when you were reading transcripts from that serial killer's trial. Tell us about that experience. And then it became the inspiration for the title of the novel. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah, so Bright Young Women is pulled from the remarks made by the judge when he sentenced Ted Bundy to die for his crimes, some of his crimes. He wasn't ultimately tried and convicted for, you know, most of the murders they believe he's responsible for. But for the murders of two Florida State University sorority sisters and the attempted murders of three more students, he was sentenced to die by electric chair. And the judge made this egregious speech where he essentially said to him, this is a tragedy because you're a bright young man. And, you know, you could have done all these amazing things with your life, but instead you went another way. I saw these remarks were unearthed for the new docuseries that was out in 2019 with previously unheard recordings from Bundy. And so I had watched that and I was enraged, like a lot of people actually seeing the remarks made by the judge. But then when I requested the transcripts and got my hands on them and read through everything, the thing that just floored me was not just that the judge had said that, but that Bundy had been allowed to speak about his thoughts about the guilty verdict. And he rambled on for about 45 minutes. And it was illogical. I mean, he sounded like one of those doomsdayers that you see on like a city street corner shouting about sin and whatever. It didn't make any sense. He sounded the opposite of bright and of someone who right. had potential. So that really tipped me into what you so appropriately call the rage epiphany. Because it's one thing to say this, if it's true, it's still disgusting because the women who were murdered were also very bright and had very promising futures in their own right. And you did not do anything but mention their names when you sentenced him to die, just the names of the victim, but you said nothing about them and their future plans. But it's doubly so when this guy is just like blabbering on for 45 minutes and has really shown his hand about how unimpressive he is. And still all you can see is or lament about is the loss of his future. Potential, which yeah. doesn't even Yeah, his yeah. future, which I'm like, yeah. what? 
future. You were just murdering women. <laughs> He'd gotten maybe six or seven months at law school before he was arrested for the attempted kidnapping and attempted murder of a Utah woman. But he had to falsify his transcripts in order to be accepted to University of uh, Utah Law School because he was a notoriously very poor and lazy student. So there wasn't really much of a future to be had for him. Nothing very bright or intelligent no. about him at all. But it is the story of the bright young women. And so that's who we want to focus on. Yeah. And we want to start with Pamela. Pam Perfect, as her yeah. um, friend Denise, who is killed, nicknames her. And I have mm -hmm. to tell you, and we, again, we are not going to make this um, a whole episode about what this did to Corinne and I offline, but this really... Pam, Pamela, and this whole Pam Perfect has really sent us over the edge. And I'll tell you why, because let me just say that there's a part in the book where she's being questioned at trial about her nickname and about why, what, how she felt about being called this. And mm -hmm. she says to the questioner, perfect is not something anyone wants to be, not by the standards of college students. No, that's the time in your life you're supposed to be having fun. And I wasn't doing any of that. I put a lot of pressure on myself to do everything by the book. I still do. And I just, I find that so relatable. I am absolutely a Pam Perfect who has always tried to do everything by the book. But really what we started exploring, me and Corinne, when we were talking about it is what is really the thing underneath that thing and yeah. why are you doing that and how much of it has to do with control and making our exterior look quote unquote perfect, maybe to cover up the mess or trauma or whatever's happening inside. And we think, I think as women a lot, that that's the way to go, that we are, if we just look good on the outside and achieve and, and, and control ourselves and look perfect, that that's what we need to do. And, and of course, we don't even know we're doing it really. I mean, I don't know that I, I wouldn't have known that on yeah. my own. So that's going to be a whole nother therapy session with my therapist, but <laughs> Back to Pam. So tell us, though, about your development of her and these parts of her that you were exploring. Yeah. So initially, that storyline was told from the perspective of Cindy Young, who now is relegated to one line in the book where she's the art student who does the initial criminal sketch of him. And Pamela was the sorority president, the kind of Tracy Flick-esque yeah. type A sorority president who was, you know, part of the story. And at one point, my editor and lit agent sat me down and they were like, look, we think you should explore telling this through Pamela's point of view because she's the most interesting to us in this timeline. And I don't know why I didn't think to do that from the beginning, because there was so much I had to work out through her. And a big part of it was, and it's something that I've also come to understand about myself, which is this, you know, and it's interesting because I don't think people who know me would necessarily describe me as a clean freak or a neat freak, but I am very particular about how things in my house are. and things I won't get into bed at the end of the day unless I wash my feet, which is something that started in New York, like walking around in flip-flops in the summer. And I was, that's disgusting. I can't get to bed. But it's now I live in LA and it's carried over because I'm, I have a dog and there's probably dog hair on my feet, you know? So let me just wash them off before I get into bed. And 
I won't let anyone in outside clothes. If my husband sits on the bed in his outside clothes, I'm like, I freak out. I freak out and I can't relax. Then I can't get into bed and relax. And it's also something I've been exploring in therapy. And I feel I've become more controlling about hygiene and things like that as I've gotten older. And it's something that I've come out of of looking at this, realizing is it's an attempt to control things, to offer some semblance of order to your surroundings when maybe young, younger, at a younger age, things felt very chaotic and out of control. That needing a certain kind of order about how things in your house, how things are cleaned, how things are washed, how often you shower, all of these things, it is a stab at control and order. Because at some point in your life, you felt that those things were kind of wrested from you. Yeah. So I thought that that worked really well with kind of a tight, I could kind of imbue a character with these qualities that I'm coming to terms with in myself. And that those went along really nicely with the idea of a kind of type A, by the book, Pam Perfect sorority president. I want to stay with Pam and talk about the point of view and the distance that you you give the narrator because we get a glimpse of Pamela's adult life. We meet her when she is in 2021. Uh, mm-hmm. She We know she's happily married. She's got a daughter. She We know little glimpses of how she met her husband, where and, and how she let that happen, her thriving family law practice. Why did you choose to give it that distance, which I think is extremely effective, as opposed mm-hmm. to just telling the story in 1978, 1979, like as if we're right there the whole time. Yeah, I think because we kept having this question of why now tell this story? What's the impetus for telling this story now? And my knee jerk reaction is always that she's sitting down to be interviewed, you know, but that was (laughs) advice that I used in my last book, The Favorite Sister, and that there's a bit of that kind of engine going on in Luckiest Girl Alive where she's being asked to participate in a documentary. So my editor kind of kindly pointed out that I might need to try something (laughs) new. And sometimes, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys read The Girls by Emma Klein, but that is also a story similar in that it's a reimagining of the, the Manson murders from 1969 but the woman who was part of the cult is remembering this time of her life as, you know, a a woman in present day. And what actually spurs her into thinking about it is that she is house sitting for a friend and in the middle of the night, someone breaks into the house and instantly she's transported back to what she was a part of when, you know, these cult members broke into the homes of Sharon Tate and murdered her and her friends. And what it turns out to be is that, and I'm not spoiling anything here because it's very quickly revealed within the first couple of pages that no one's breaking into the house, but it's two teenage kids who I think know the homeowner and they're just looking for a place to hook up and drink and whatever. But she's looking at what it's to be a girl and it's making her realize kind of all the ways that girlhood hasn't really changed that much since 1968 or 1969 and what the expectations are of girlhood. So that to me was a very subtle and successful 
reason to be thinking about the story now. Unfortunately, I don't do subtle very well. So I really needed, I felt that I needed something really big. And if it couldn't be, she was being interviewed for some sort of documentary or novel or whatever, it had to be kind of the final missing piece to this puzzle, which was always the question of what happened to Ruth, one of the other victims. And so I actually wove that in after the fact, after I had Pamela's story and I've integrated Tina into her story, I started to think about what would be an opening sequence that would draw you in as a reader. And that would also feed really nicely into both of the women's stories kind of coming together and some sort of resolution in a situation where you, you were kind of denied it for a very for so many decades, basically. You ended up oh. subtle. It was very oh, effective. You think? Thank you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned Tina, and that's what we're, you know, we're talking. It's another one of the bright young women. Tina is the link, you know, sort of the one yeah. that, that sees the connection between the killings in Pamela's sorority house and this disappearance of Ruth Wachowski, who was a woman that Tina had formed this strong connection and relationship with. And after Ruth goes missing, Tina really spends her life trying to figure out the truth, what happened to her. And the thing that's so remarkable to me is that every turn, Tina is undermined. People think she's crazy. Ruth's own mother thinks that she should stop this sort of pursuit. The police discredit her, you know, but what I love about her is she has this faith in herself and this conviction and doesn't waver and... That I thought was really interesting about her. So I wanted to hear more about your development of Tina and how you used her to connect the the two. Yeah, I loved the idea. I always have this thing when I'm watching a movie or reading a book and there's a character who is really kind of struggling for advocacy. You know, you're, God, I wish some, that someone could just swoop in and tell this person that what's happening is not okay and have some sort of wisdom and clarity about the world. And so I think Tina kind of functioned as almost a fantasy element for me about, it was very important to me that what was captured in this story was the sense that the women saved each other. They really were abandoned by their community. Law enforcement, not necessarily through any kind of malicious act, more just a result of ignorance and insensitivity, didn't really know how to treat them and talk to them. And by all accounts, what really happened is the sorority sisters really just had to kind of lean on each other to get through all of this. And I think that that's an extraordinary thing about our culture that is true and has remained true is that victims, you think like this terrible thing is going to happen to you and someone's going to step in and say, here's the protocol. Someone has broken into your house and murdered two of your friends and there's blood everywhere. We're going to put you up here. You're going to be safe. We're going to clean up the crime scene and we're going to catch this person and you're going to have an armed guard following you around until we do. And that's just not, that costs a lot of money to do. And there just isn't sadly money to do that for a lot of victims. So I really wanted to capture what it's like to be a victim of a violent crime where the perpetrator has not been caught and there's still a lot of danger. And Tina, oh, you captured me, that. Yeah. Thank you. 
Tina for me was that very godmother who came in and had not just money, but like had experience with this. She was four years out of having lost Ruth and could kind of share her experience with Pamela and coach her through it. The moment where she's like, in my practice, I don't do this, but you're not my patient. So this is what you need to do. Yeah, Yeah. it's so true. My Um, therapist is always like, I can't tell you what to do. That's not my job. And I was like, great. Well, I will use that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Everything is copy. And I don't know how much you want to talk about Ruth and the story that unfolds, which is just really complicated and heartbreaking. But you give a voice to someone who rarely gets to share their story in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. what was your drive behind Ruth's point of view in this novel? Yeah, Ruth was actually the easiest for me to craft because there was so little out there about the Lake Sammamish victims. And so I didn't feel constrained by trying to hit certain points in the story that were part of Pamela's timeline, him being arrested, the trial, whatever. Ruth was really much more open-ended. So what I knew I wanted to do is I wanted to capture this idea. Something that struck me very early on in my research was that there was an eyewitness account of one of the victims who went off with Ted Bundy that day in Seattle. And her account was that he approached this young woman who was by herself. His arm was in a sling and He said, I'm supposed to meet my friends here to help me load my sailboat into the back of the car, but I can't find them anywhere. It was an unseasonably hot day in Seattle. Everyone was at this beach. It was, I think they said there were like 30,000 people there that day. And he was like, it's too crowded and I can't find them. Will you help me? Because he was posing as though his arm was broken. And ultimately the victim did end up agreeing to help him and went off with him. But the eyewitness account of a girl who was nearby reported that she was very curt and almost sarcastic with him. She didn't want to be bothered by him. And she was annoyed that he came and asked her for help. But ultimately she acquiesced because I think what women understand even to this day is it's very hard to say no to people when they ask for your help. Because there's a big conditioning system that goes into being pliable and polite and taking care of people when they ask. And that struck me because my impression of the case and how he kind of targeted his victims was that he leaned on his quote unquote good looks and his charm. And what I found time and time again is so many accounts from women who were, he gave me the creeps. There was something off with him. You know, and to me, it's such a different thing to go off with somebody because they're posing as injured and they're asking for your help than it is to go off with someone because you're smitten with them and you think they're cute. And I really feel the media made it out to be these women were fooled by him and no woman was fooled by him. They all saw him for what he was. And so I really wanted that to come through with Ruth's story that she just felt that she couldn't say no to him because of a whole mass of kind of factors from how she was raised in her family to having a fight with her mother right before she went to the beach that day. So that was always so clear to me with her story. 
It's amazing. That really does come through with Ruth. You're sort of like, Ugh, I'm, not. I'm just she happy to hear something's not. easy in the writing yeah. process. I'm always, <laughs> yeah, because it never is. True. True. Nothing else was, True. but that one was yeah. like the rare time I get to say it. Yeah. We'll take it. We'll take it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I was very fascinated by this aspect that you talk about of complex grief and then impossible grief. When Tina and Ruth meet, they meet in this complex grief group and it, you explain that it explores the idea of how you can hold two things at the same time. You can be grieving and you can be angry. And to mm-hmm. me, that is exactly how grief feels to me. I, I, my experience has been exactly that, that it is it is definitely not one thing and it, it does often involve anger and other things. And I just really related to that. But then you also talk about later as Tina refines it in her career and she calls it impossible grief. And you describe that as it applies to cases where the grief processing mechanism has been obstructed like a clog and a drain. And how ultimately the work is to let that grief run through your veins without forming a, as you say, a life-threatening clot. So it's not its not that it goes away. It's not that you fix it or anything. It's going to run through. It just, it just doesn't like literally cause you to, yeah, have a, have a clot up. and die. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So tell me more about about what you were exploring with these types of grief, um, maybe what you learned about it in this process, because I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah, thank you for saying that. So it's I became familiar with the the kind of philosophy of a psychiatrist named Pauline Boss during the pandemic. And her con it's and I think I don't know if you guys have a finished copy or an advanced copy, but in the finished copy, I thank her in my acknowledgement. I, I even went and bought it. Yeah. Oh, you bought it. I oh, you bought them with the closure. Yes. Everyone should read it. I it's, haven't I haven't read it yet, but I'm it's I, so, I couldn't it's so, say no after I read your acknowledgments. Yes. Okay. So it's so quick. Yeah. I think it's less than a hundred pages. It's tiny, tiny. But I read this profile about her in the New York Times because her concept of ambiguous grief was something that she developed back in the 60s and 70s to address what wives of fighter pilots in the Vietnam War were going through, where their husbands had been lost during the war, literally flying over the water, and nobody was ever recovered. And so they were presumed dead, but the remains were never found. They were never brought home. And so there was always a a moment of, well, he could still be alive and lost in the jungle out there somewhere. And how do you grieve when you don't know for sure that someone is even dead and you, you can still hold on hope to hope that they might be found alive? And this philosophy resurfaced. They used it again with family members of 9-11 victims. And then it came up again during the pandemic around systemic racism and the idea that racism falls under this category of ambiguous loss because it really describes something where you're just denied proper justice and closure around very traumatic events, which is the history of racism in this country for a lot of people. 
how can you move on and grieve something that you're told isn't a problem anymore, which we have a lot of people who deny that it's the trauma that it is. And I was so struck by this because I'm surprised this has never been applied to survivors of sexual assault because that's how it spoke to me. So many women are gaslit in the wake of their assaults into being told, no, that didn't happen, or it was a misunderstanding, or you shouldn't have been wearing that, or you drank too much. So how do you grieve something that you're told never happened? And so this was very profound for me. And her solution is that you find meaning. If you can find meaning and purpose in what happened to you, then you can process it in a way where it's always with you, but that's what kind of relieves the clog. That's what allows it to kind of run through your system. And I just thought this was also so appropriate for what someone like Tina would be going through where her partner and best friend was, you know, presumed dead, but they'd never found her remains, you know, and they never knew what happened to her. And how do you live a full life while never getting answers to those questions? So that's something that she dedicates her kind of life's work to. And I just think Pauline Boss is incredible. And her concept is the fact that it kind of came back into popularity during the pandemic. I just feel like so many people who have unresolved feelings around their respective traumas and grief could get something out of this concept. I know I did, and I had to find a way to put it into this book. Yeah. And you did in so many ways. I want to try to connect that dot with something else because I think, again, in this book, you continue to be a beacon of healing for sexual assault survivors. And I had a huge epiphany when I was kind of describing to Kate how scared I was reading this book, by the way. And I'm not easily scared, but what is scary is the randomness of it, right? Mm -hmm. And I was telling Kate and I, I heard it come out of my mouth and I'm like, it's just to think that you could be laying in your bed, sleeping and doing nothing wrong and this can happen to you. And as mm -hmm. soon as doing nothing wrong came out of my mouth, I was like, huh, that exposes my underlying belief that somehow I was at fault for sexual violence. I endured because of so many of the factors you're saying, where were you? Why were you alone? What were you wearing? What was happening? And I mean, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, but it's really hard to process that mm -hmm. for yourself. And just hearing that myself say that, I was like, why hadn't I ever given myself that fairness that I had done yeah, nothing that wrong? Great. I didn't, yes, that I didn't deserve yeah. what happened to me either. Why? Why did I so easily see it in them and I couldn't see it in me? And I was wondering if you had intentionally had that as part of this, you know, it's not your fault. It's never the survivor's fault. I think that's a great articulation of it. 
And that is one of those aha moments. I do know from doing the research and speaking to one of the survivors of the FSU attack is they still managed to get blamed even when they were just lying in their beds, quote unquote, doing nothing, you know? And so I think if anything, the clarity came that it's, there's no version of something like this happening of a attack of a gendered or sexual nature occurring, happening to someone that you will never not have someone or some thoughts of feeling like you're responsible for this because it's so ingrained in the culture. There is that line in there where Pamela says, we don't want people to think we're hysterical. And Tina says to her, they're going to call you hysterical no matter how you handle this. You might as well do whatever the hell you want. And I think Mm -hmm. that also goes hand in hand with what you're describing, which is the culture finds a way to pin the blame and the burden on the victim, no matter what. There's no version of this where anyone is a good and pure victim. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. I had that line marked too. I thought that was so good. And there's another one too, where, which is somewhat like it, where they said something about there were reports that the women were screaming and no one you know, Pamela's like, no one was screaming, but I should, you know, I should have just let them scream. Like, like meaning we should all just fucking scream because they're going to say we did this anyway, that we were hysterical, that we screamed, which by the way, even if they were screaming, rightly so, (laughs) you know, it's just, there's always some fault. Yeah. That was Tina's point to her too. You actually might need to scream, you know, but especially Mm -hmm. even now, it's so hard to show that and to feel safe Mm -hmm. enough to have yeah. those big emotions. I mean, I find that hard to do now as a woman in 2023. So imagine yeah. what that was like in 1970. 1970s. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. I also want to talk about the black swan events concept, which is in the book a couple times. And it's a it's a phrase we all hear, you know, but I was like, oh, re-look up the definition of this because I was getting really interested in it. And in the definition of a black swan event in, in the dictionary is a high impact event that is difficult to predict under normal circumstances, but that in retrospect appears to have been inevitable. It also says it's unexpected and therefore difficult to prepare for, but it is often rationalized with the benefit of hindsight as having been unavoidable. And then you also use it again with respect to Tina and has as if she is sort of a black swan event in Pamela's life. And in this instance, it's in a really positive way. Mm -hmm. But to me, the thing that got me going about this was this idea of it being somehow inevitable and that some things are maybe faded. And, And what do you think about that? And like about these things that are maybe just unavoidable or meant to be and this idea generally? I think it goes back to the idea of finding meaning around this purpose, you know, meaning and purpose around this senseless thing that happened, because it is frightening to think that things can be random. Mm -hmm. And that's why, although there is an example of a traumatic black swan event in this, there's also the example of a positive black swan event, which does exist. Some people use it to play the stock market or the lottery and make a ton of money. So it can have positive outcomes as well. And so for 
someone like Pamela, it's this idea that, you know, this terrible thing happened that looking back in some ways maybe was unavoidable because there's always going to be the chance that the random act that you are the the target of a random act of violence has a very small chance but then there's also the very small chance that something comes out of it like a life-changing relationship with somebody like Tina I want to stay kind of on this woo-woo idea and talk about a little bit about Florida and Pamela's drawn to it. Now, I'm not going to spoil the story, but there is a really fascinating and dynamic scene with her mother where she hears a story about her childhood in Florida and her mother says, there was something between you and Florida. You had something to yeah. work out and what that's why you returned there. First of all, Lest you think it's too woo-woo, there is also the idea that Pamela says, the universe, she talks like this, Marion Young, a woman who was always talking about going with the flow as though her actions and choices did not impart a tidal force of consequence. So you've got some balance in there too, but yeah, do you feel like a place can have this kind of vice-like grip on a person? Where did this idea come from that you're exploring with, with this piece of history for Aunt Pamela. Yeah, I think it's just the older I get, the more I just see connection between everything in my life in ways that I was really asleep to for a long time. And it comes, I'm able to see it because I'm curious about things now. And it's not necessarily that I believe that things are ordained by the universe as much as I believe things are ordained by our past. There's that idea that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. So yes, I don't necessarily- I just use that for my epigraph in my novel. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? I, don't, I just, it's I just young, submitted right? it. <laughs> yes, it's it's yes. Young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it is. I don't necessarily believe in fate. I believe in the unconscious. And that that is developed around things that happened very, very young, that we don't necessarily connect to present day choices and places we find ourselves in adulthood. So exactly as you said, lest it become too woo-woo, I may have moved to Los Angeles, <laughs> but I'm really not a woo-woo person. I'm hardcore psychiatry and medicine. And leaning into that work has taught me how everything is formed based on the childhood and the blueprint from your childhood. So if you train your eye on anything in your life now, you will be able to start to see a connection to something young. It just takes a lot of work. And like I said, a lot of curiosity. Yes. And curiosity, you mean as opposed to or I'm asking, but I know I'm curious now, older, but younger, I didn't have room for curiosity. I had to know things. Like I have to know what I'm doing next and know where yeah. I'm going and know my future. And so I was so closed off to curiosity because I felt like I had to survive. I had to like know something and get there. We have lots of avenues to not have to look too hard at things when we're younger. Mm -hmm. We're going out all the time. That's you true. have this big circle of friends. No one's gotten married or had kids yet. Everything is busy, busy, busy. Jobs, graduating college. There's so much going on. And I just think that you can keep yourself distracted 
And you can find all of these coping mechanisms that you might not even realize are coping mechanisms until you get older and you're like, this isn't feeling so good anymore. You know, what's really going on here. And that's where I feel my curiosity came from. My life was no longer sustainable to me in a way that it had been in my 20s, but I didn't know another version. I didn't know how to create another version until I started really looking inward and being curious about myself, my patterns, my history, all of those things. How those coping mechanisms work. And and then when they stop working, where yeah, the limits right. are. Yeah. 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 But this sounds like our Pam Perfect offline conversation, Corinne. No, because I was trying to make the connections, as you're saying, to the past me and like, how did I get here? And mm-hmm. one of the issues, it's not, you have to be curious, which we are. And it is hard work, but it's also hard to remember. I say things like, well, I've always been like this, right? And Corinne's like, well, when did this start? And always, and and honestly, I don't have very good memories from very early childhood. And then when you throw in, you know, like intergenerational trauma, what if I don't even remember? What if it's something from a past past? And it's it's hard, you know? It's like, even when you want to do the work and want to look back, it's like, you really gotta, you gotta go deep. You do. And I, my therapist always says to me, you don't need to remember it for me to know some version of this happened because it's manifesting in all of these ways. And I can see a pattern that maybe is not so obvious to the naked eye, but once you see it, you're like, whoa, okay, this was born from some place that I don't remember, but I can see it now. So while I may not remember how or when this started, I know that this is part of my patterning and this is something I'm doing now that isn't serving me and that doesn't ultimately feel good to me anymore. Doesn't Tina say something like that to Pamela? She's like, I don't know what happens in your childhood, but I see what's yes. going on here. I don't That's need, right. She I does. Don't, yeah. I don't need to know what yeah. happened to you young to know that something happened to make you this way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Probably you just saved me a whole session. Acknowledgements. <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope you like your fiction. Well, you- novel as Tina Cannon. As Tina. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we know that you're, you've just said you may live in LA, but you're not super woo woo. We know that from chatting with you last time about astrology. We know your sign. We talked about yeah. that. But this time, I don't know. You told us Pamela was a Virgo. Yes. Although my head I have exploded. to tell you, I almost missed this because I read the galley and it is not in there. Still yeah. know nothing about astrology aside from the fact that I'm a Sagittarius and <laughs> also what be- Virgos are. Because Virgos are so fucking loud and proud about being Virgos. That's the old, everything I know about a Virgo, I know against my will. Because isn't this a Virgo month? Is, isn't September Virgo right now? Because yes, everyone, yes, this is as it. soon yeah. as the season starts, every single person I follow on Instagram is like, welcome to Virgo season. I swear to God, no other sign does this but Virgo. So, Wait, yes, Leos, yes. Leos don't do that? Yeah. I, I don't I know like what a Leo that. is. No, but okay, no, maybe we're so, close together there. Unless somehow yeah. I it's draw, summer. Yeah, I draw Vir- a lot of Virgos into my sphere. And so that's... That's my version of everyone's a, a Virgo. Yes. By but the way, I agree. But you know, they are very loud and proud. 
They are very yeah. loud and proud. I mean, by the way, my 12-year-old self would be horrified that I'm sitting here saying I don't believe in the woo-woo because just thinking about how much I loved the craft and I taught myself tarot cards because I was, I want to be in Wicca. <laughs> now I, I'm rejecting yeah. all of it. <laughs> You're holding both things and you are in a place where it could easily overwhelm you. So you've got to hold a little bit of that jaded edge New Yorker, right? Yes, exactly. Pam is very Virgo. So you you really got it right, though. I mean, she is very (laughs) Virgo. And I think the reason you also think there's just Virgos or Virgo is the most common sign. I don't know if you knew this. I I actually Googled this, Corinne. I saw this yesterday. There are more Virgos than any other sign. So what is it? What's nine months back from September? Is that like Valentine's Day? Like, I'm like, why is everyone conceding? New Year's Year's Eve? It is. There's something. I forget if we do the math, there is a reason. So there are just a lot of them. So I think that was a good good call. But Pam is definitely very Virgo. She is. Yeah. Yes, it's too much. Yeah, it's, it's a very much. Virgo quality that there would be more Virgos um, in all right. the world can we, than any other. Can we talk about some Bravo? What? Yeah, I don't even. Please. I don't even know where to start. Since the last time we talked, so much has happened. I know. Are, you're watching. Know. Where do you want to start? There's New New York. Carl yes. and Lindsay. I'm, what? Yeah. Okay, so New New York. I'm obsessed, and I'm very here for it to unfold as it is. I don't need manufactured drama from these women because they're giving me great fashion, great real estate. I mean, Jenna's. I just want to live in Jenna's apartment at all times, and I need to spend more time in her tiny little 1,500-square-foot Hamptons house, and it's so dark and moody, and I just want to be there. A little bit more than yeah. I want to be in Aaron's all-white mansion. Um, yeah. No offense. Yes. And Carl and Lindsay, honestly, I've always loved my girl, Lindsay Hubbard. But I, I know, think I know. this is best for everyone. Yeah. It might have been one of those things that the timing was just off. And did if Danielle didn't call it from the very start, like yeah. it's going too fast. Something's not quite right. Yeah. And I think it's like that honeymoon phase that they talk about that can happen for a lot of people when they get sober. There's a very euphoric period that that can sometimes conceal, I think is what people were. I hope I'm not misspeaking here. Yeah. Rose colored glasses kind of. Yeah, exactly. In a relationship, because it must be so exciting to kind of get your life together, feel really good all of the time, to physically feel really good all the time, and then be planning a wedding. You must be in a very celebratory yeah. mood. So I can see getting caught up with that. But I think he got caught up with the wrong person for him and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. I don't think he's the right person for her either. But I like them yes. both. I want Lindsay and- to be happy. I really do. I know people have strong feelings about her, but I feel very protective of her. I, I do really want her to be happy. <laughs> I am with you. And did you see the newest Vanderpump? Rachel Raquel is back on Instagram and Tom Sandoval wished her a happy birthday and she blocked him. She blocked him. Good for her. Honestly, I thought that my unpopular opinion about her interview with Bethany Frankel was that I thought that she showed a lot of reflection and insight. And I did think that she took responsibility for what she did. 
much more so than him. And he's 41 years old. Yes. And she's not even 30 yet. And to me, she's looking more inward and wanting to do things differently going forward. Whereas he, I mean, talk about caught up in a pattern that you have no intention of being curious about enough to change. He's not learning a damn thing from what happened. No. Anyway. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I I agree. No, I I agree with that interview. There was a lot of issues with the interview, but I do think she There were was... a lot of issues with the interview, but I don't necessarily think that that was Raquel or Rachel's doing. Uh, but I'm exactly, scared to say anything exactly. more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bethany, she's a force. So, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, I, I want to ask about, and you can not answer, and you can ask us to take it all out, but I know you posted it a little while ago about book four feeling joyful and flowy, and what's yeah. the deal? Yeah, so- um, Flowy. Have, <laughs> it was. I was very flowy when writing it. I have a very yeah. rough draft of my next book, which with the writer's strike going on, I wanted to be able to take this time to really get ahead on my next book because- My challenge has been over the last couple of years, trying to balance the book and screenwriting stuff and constantly feeling like I'm letting everyone down. Like I'm not delivering on this thing that someone else has really supported me on and and is excited to work with me. And I'm like, oh, but I'm over here working on this other thing. So the writer strike is obviously book stuff is all excluded from that. So I was like, I need to use this time. So I have a rough first draft. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but I'm very excited about it. Like this book, this next one is also a departure from, I think, my two earlier works, which is this one's a little smuttier. <laughs> so yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. It's been very exciting to write. I'm having a lot of fun with this one. So I don't know, it remains to be seen about how long it will take to actually be out there in the world, but I'm working on it. Yeah, that's great. That's not a, a small feat to like have that draft, have something to work with. And no, it's not. I'm, I feel very yeah. good about having something in my back pocket right now. It's a good, it's a rare and good yeah. feeling. <laughs> yes. Nice. Oh, smutty. I'll take I it know. though. I mean, this I would imagine <laughs> writing is was very heavy and yeah yeah although i really this... i have a hard time understanding what a departure is for you because your voice yeah. is so singular yeah. at, oh, that that's you could nice. write Thank anything you. else and it just is so I clearly just, your work i think i mean a departure in terms of this one at least is not set in a contemporary time period and i had to do a lot of research to feel i could confidently depict a time that I have no experience with. And when things were were so different in a lot of ways for young women, but also not that different, which is something else I discovered. One of your themes. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But that's, Um, uh, yeah. Which in some ways made it easier to write, but then like also a little bit more depressing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, is there anything you want to share with us before you go that you're loving right now any books or shows or yeah documentaries that um, well I'm yeah. loving the new season of only murders in the building and I am reading happiness falls by Angie Kim and I'm just in awe it is such a unique 
book and it's a thriller and it's pulse pounding. You're trying to figure out what happened to this missing father, but it's, it's incredibly touching about a family and kind of secrets we keep from each other in an attempt to care and protect one another. Really, my hat is off to Angie Kim on this one. It's an extraordinary book. So I'm almost finished with it. And I'm very excited to be able to get back to it tonight. Jess, thank you so much for joining us. And for Bright Young Women, it is a such an emotional read. It is enraging. It's entertaining. And I think it's a little enlightening. It, I learned a lot Hello. for myself. Dash so. of woo-woo. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A dash. A dash. If you're okay yes. with it, I'm willing to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Always right. great we, talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much.